This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is Grand Central Transfer available for 5 and 6. WPIX FM Rock 102. It's finally election night, and the Love Boat takes a ghostly Halloween cruise with the master of suspense, Vincent Price. Then on Fantasy Island. It's the basic hustle step. Crazy Eddie's new Syosset Long Island store at 350 Jericho Turnpike with the guaranteed lowest sale prices on anything and everything in home entertainment. Shop around, get the lowest sale prices you can find, but don't buy anything till you see Crazy Eddie. My own hope is that the American athletes will participate in the 1980 Olympics. No team has ever come back from a 3-0 deficit. Well, the Yankees won't have to worry about that anymore, at least this season, because tonight at the stadium, they ended all the suspense and finally broke the ice. We arrived at uh, LaGuardia, and I took a bus from LaGuardia to Grand Central. As we were driving through Queens, it was disappointing because Queens from LaGuardia to, to Manhattan is, is not very attractive. And I'm looking at the skyline, well, that looks more like uh, New York, and then we uh, emerged from the tunnel, and the next impression I had, man, the streets are so narrow. The impression that you get of the streets was squeezed by the height of the skyscrapers, and as you're sitting on a bus, you, don't, you can't see what's up there. And I was used to those wide roads coming in and out of Moscow. The inside of the Grand Central Terminal is quite impressive, but you have to understand where I was coming from. I was coming from Moscow, where every subway station was a, like the interior of a palace. So I wasn't that impressed. Jack had arrived in New York City and immediately felt the sensory overload as he took in the loudness of midtown Manhattan. The important thing for me was to find a place to stay. I wasn't a tourist, right? put my uh, suitcase in a locker, and then proceed to a hotel that was recommended. From his days living in the upstairs apartment of his grade school to the outbuilding he rented in while training in Berlin, the one that contained little more than a chair, a bed, and ice-cold running water, Jack always remembered what it was like living with much less. He had looked forward to this day for a long time. Despite working for the KGB and fully subscribing to the communist rhetoric, Jack couldn't help but be excited about the prospect of something a bit nicer. So I walk in there, it looks really nice, I said, finally. And I've, I've always had this disappointment with places where I'm staying. It took me forever and ever to live in something really comfortable. Now I'm looking at this hotel and said, oh man, finally, finally something good. I'm going to be comfortable. I go in and ask him, so how much is it per month? And I remember like something like 1700 And I said, okay, I'm going to check around a little bit. I might be back. Of course, I knew I can't take that because I was down to about $5,000, maybe a little more, but that would have eaten up my, my reserves very quickly. I had to regroup.
the agent who made that suggestion was probably lazy or he didn't quite know the purpose he wasn't quite brief to find something that is reasonably priced right i went uh, for one night i stayed at a regular hotel as i register the clerk asked me for id so all i had was my birth certificate so i pulled it out showed it to him and he accepted it after checking in i was wandering around in the neighborhood and i found a place that charged 800. It was still a little on the high end, but much better than the other one. That sounded pretty good, so I moved in there the next day for a month. Jack's requirements for a place weren't lengthy, but privacy always took precedent over comfort. He needed to stay hidden. Well, you couldn't have bath down the hallway because of you know the hanky-panky that uh, I was involved in. You know, you need to destroy the material that you use up in the process of writing a letter to, to the center. When you listen to your shortwave transmission and you do the decryption and eventually you need to burn all this stuff, right? So you need to have a private path. But ultimately, I, I figured I need to find something even cheaper. So as I'm getting to know the city, I found a hotel on the Upper West Side on 77th Street between um, Amsterdam Avenue and Broadway. That one was $600, but it wasn't quite as good. Uh, the mattress had several fist-sized holes in it. It was sort of clean, but, you know, it, it was again substandard. But... It had a private bath. There was small-time criminals, vagrants, all kinds of like odd people and spies, of course. You know. <laughs> For most of that time, I didn't have a job. I had nothing to do. So in order to indicate that I have something to do, I would leave the hotel around 7.30 in the morning and wouldn't come back until after 5.00. You have to know your playground. The, the city that you operate in is your playground. So I explored the entire city. I took the subway to every uh, final stop that you can take. I really, really got to know the city. It was on my birthday. I was out in Central Park with a big towel, tanning myself, reading a book, and I'm thinking, I'm in New York on my birthday, and I'm getting a tan. It's much warmer than Germany. When I really felt proud that I got here, and I felt so, sort of special on my birthday, right? From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Alden Ehrenreich. This is The Agent. I was on a one-way street. I needed to go to the United States. She could not be allowed to interfere with that. There was no turning back. It was clear that I was going to become Henry Van Randall. Soviet troops were all over the place in Afghanistan today. Neither the American people nor I will support sending an Olympic team to Moscow. They were afraid that Ronald Reagan might want to accelerate the end of the world. To ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I created for myself an artificial dual personality. I had two of them. The spy job got in, in the way of my real job. I knew that the FBI would never find me. 
I had a dream one night. I think I need to look for him again. I need to find him. Chapter 6. Bright Lights. My name is Vince Houghton. I'm currently the director of the National Cryptologic Museum at the National Security Agency. Part of this, I was the historian curator of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I spent about six and a half years there. And before that, I was in the United States Army, where my bio very uh, tactfully says that I work closely with both military and civilian intelligence agencies in several capacities. Jack was just a guy. As much as certain elements within the, the media and others want to make it sound like we're in this massive surveillance state where everyone's being watched, everyone's not being watched. Very few people are being watched. And if you're one that is not being watched, then you can basically get away with anything until you do something stupid and get caught. Jack had grown more comfortable in New York City and was able to easily fit in without being noticed. But he was running out of money quickly, so it was time for a dead drop operation. Before doing the drop, he needed to make sure he wasn't being followed. I had, in, in Moscow, really, really excellent training to discover whether you're being followed or not. The rule was three hours. You need to wander around in the city for three hours, use public transportation, subway, bus, walk quite a bit. You go from place to place, but uh, there, there has to be a reason why you're moving around. You might, might buy a movie ticket at a, at a movie theater. You might go into a department store and browse around. That's okay. I also uh, used the uh, Museum of Natural History, especially at a point when I was a member. You know, I could just walk in. I was a regular there. Moscow was an easier playground than New York, but I found enough spots in, in New York City Department stores are really good. Having spent three hours making sure he wasn't being tailed by the FBI or others on the lookout for him, Jack would finally arrive at the site of his dead drop. While it gave Jack comfort to know that there were other agents in New York working with him, he would never actually meet them in person. That was a no-no. They could not be seen together. Ever. This is how a typical drop operation functions. First of all, why even use a, a drop? This is, this is to exchange material. You know, something that has weight and size. That could be money, it could be a passport, it could be even a piece of equipment, ammunition and stuff, stuff like that. So any, any objects, right? And the objects are typically put into a container that is it's just garbage, literally. My partners always used old crushed oil cans. The container should not be of interest to people, but also not be of interest to, to animals. I would make rocks out of plaster of Paris. There, there are two signal spots and the actual spot where the container is, is placed. They all worked like, like clockwork. Operationally, the KGB was very good and I was really well trained, so they, they worked really well. Though the dead drops were always done in secret, they would often happen in plain sight throughout the area. There was one in particular in Flushing, Queens, at the last stop of the subway, the 7 train, that smelled funny to Jack. This one bothered me because the drop site was right in the open. I could find it, but... There's that oil can, and there's people all over the place, and I pick up the oil can. I felt uncomfortable doing that, but uh, it all worked out. 
And so I had enough money to operate for another year. The tasks Jack and others performed had to be simple and predictable. There is a kind of the KISS theory involved in intelligence as well. The, the, you know, keep it simple, stupid. The, the more basic you can keep things, the less likely there are to be mistakes. You know, why overcomplicate something when it doesn't need to be? Particularly in the case of Jack, where no one has eyes on him whatsoever. Uh, he's not being followed. No one is suspicious of him. He doesn't necessarily have to be all that advanced when it comes to communications. Most countries, uh, United States included, and the Soviets certainly included, had multiple types of intelligence officers that were sent overseas. And really, we call them knocks for non-official cover. Uh, those are the ones like Jack who would be illegals. And then those with official cover. And those official cover is exactly that. They're, they are put overseas in a position with diplomatic immunity. Uh, they are a member of the State Department or a member of some kind of diplomatic mission to the other country. Uh, they might work out of the embassy. Almost certainly they are there under another job where they have to actually do their job on a day-to-day -day basis. The, the second deputy agricultural attache at the embassy is likely not working for the Department of Agriculture, likely working for uh, CIA. The other side is the illegal or the knock. And this is somebody who is overseas operating for an intelligence agency as a professional who does not have official cover, meaning they're acting as a business person or a tourist or uh, a journalist. Like in Jack's case, it's just somebody getting a job, someone trying to, to kind of weasel their way into society in one way or another. And that has huge advantages in certain circumstances, but disadvantages in others. And here are the advantages and disadvantages of both. One is that if you're caught and you have official cover, the most a country can do to you is kick you out. They can name you persona non grata and they make sure you leave the country. Uh, you know, they could probably interrogate you and maybe even roughly interrogate you for 12 hours or so. But there's very specific rules that have been set up hundreds of years ago about the regulations and how you can treat people with official cover. So if you're caught, the worst that can happen to you is you're sent out of the country. If you're a knock or an illegal, you don't have that protection. So if you're caught doing espionage uh, in certain countries, you can just be put to death, right? You know, if it's North Korea or Iran or other places. But in the United States, you can go to prison for the rest of your life. If you're caught doing bad enough, you know, espionage, there's no real limitations to how they can interrogate you. And, you know, you can just rot in prison. And if you are someone who the, the, the host country decides to trot out in front of the press and say, we caught a bad guy, then you're in a position as a, the nation who sent that person, as the person that nation works for. In many cases, if you want to be embarrassed, if you don't want to uh, have the whole world know that this, your guy has been caught, you may just disown them. That's the kind of the old mission impossible. You know, the agency will disown you if you're captured. That can happen. So why the hell would anyone send anybody overseas as a knock or an illegal? Well, the reason is because those people can do way more than someone with official cover. Someone with official cover is going to be followed everywhere they go. For instance, every American working in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, whether they're pretending to be a State Department official or actually are a State Department official, every single person is followed uh, by FSB, it used to be followed by KGB. There, there's close tabs kept on them. That's where the illegals or the knocks come into play. 
if I'm overseas as a tourist or as a business person or like Jack did, I'm, I'm literally pretending to be an American, then no one's following me. No one has any idea to be suspicious about me. I can meet with anybody anywhere. I can travel across the country like Jack did on several occasions. And it's not against the law. So, you know, that's where that comes into play. That's why you want to have a mixture of both. Because U.S. counterintelligence did not know about someone like Jack, he had a big advantage exchanging intelligence information versus what Soviet diplomats had to go through. You know, when you look at someone who is working at an embassy under official cover, where it's clear as day to everybody what they're actually doing there, they're not the second deputy agricultural attaché at the U.S. embassy. You know, uh, their their business card may say Minister of Shrubberies, but they're actually, for sure, everyone knows working for an intelligence agency. You know, they have to be much more sophisticated in the way they communicate because everyone is paying attention to what they're doing. And so that's where you start getting all this spy crafty stuff, whether it's first communications or, you know, the, the ability to, to cipher communications or the dead drops and brush passes and all the James Bondy stuff. Gordon Carrera... BBC security reporter and author of the book Russians Among Us, notes just how difficult it was to actually find someone like Jack Barsky. Illegals are fundamentally very hard to find. Um, The point about them is that they're hard to find. That's what they're there for, to blend in. And with other Russian spies, you kind of, you know, if you're the FBI, you basically go, well, a normal Russian spy is normally operating out of the embassy or maybe out of a kind of Russian company or state company. So you know that a certain proportion of the people coming out of the embassy or, you know, whether it's the, you know, a Russian, you know, airline or something like that are, are going to be spies. So you follow all of them or you look for a lead on all of them. You bug the embassy. There's certain things you can do to find those people. But finding an illegal in the wild is incredibly hard. I mean, you don't, there's no, there's no way of doing that kind of detective work to kind of, uh, to narrow it down and stumble across them because you're not even looking for a Russian, you know, you can't, it's not even just saying, well, let's look at all the Russians in New York, um, because they're, they're not a Russian. We know that, you know, there's FBI, then they're following people and particularly they're following uh, the diplomats because they knew who they were. Interestingly enough, there weren't enough FBI because they they just couldn't cover everybody. That's why it was so interesting to note that not a single one of these planned operations was ever aborted because my partner had a tail. They somehow managed to evade the tail. Moscow had instructed Jack to obtain a passport, the crown jewel that would allow him to more freely pass between countries using this new American identity. But securing a passport would be easier said than done. The biggest problem was the beginning. Back in Moscow, they explained to me how to proceed. To get a driver's license, you needed proof of birth and some kind of ID. Even a proof of residence, really. Well, I lived in a hotel, so I didn't have an electric bill. I didn't have a utility bill. I needed something with my name and address on it. And they said, that's easy, just go get a library card, that's no problem. Optimistic as I was, when the time came, I went to the nearest library someplace in in Manhattan, and I said, I'd uh, I'd like to get a library card. The response was, I'd like to see some ID. 
Sorry, I have nothing on me today. I'll come back tomorrow. Now I got a problem. It's a catch-22. In order to get an ID, you need an ID. So Moscow was of no help whatsoever. I just reported back to them, I can't get a library card. Jack was not about to be deterred from securing an American passport simply because he was having trouble getting a library card. Moscow expected him to figure this out on his own. One day it was accidental. Uh, and I wound up in the Museum of Natural History for two reasons. A, it was a nice place to go to. But it also turned out to be a really good place for surveillance detection. The Museum of Natural History has a lot of staircases and long corridors where there's nobody and where you can walk up and down without giving a reason why you're going this way and that way. I actually used that for surveillance detection down the road. As I'm uh, about to leave the place, I see in the lobby there the advertising membership. So I bought a whatever, $50 membership, and now I had ID. Okay, I got my library card. I think that was a big plus uh, with the center because I improvised. That's why they took people like me, right? So I can find my way out of a situation and I don't give up. The moment I started this process, so to speak, until I got the card, it was maybe six months. Yes, and I was just hanging out and trying to figure out a way around this. With that card, getting the driver's license was easy. I had a, a certified copy of a birth certificate. Now I had the library card. Even today, I believe, motor vehicles in New York accepts library cards uh, as proof of residence. I got my driver's license, so now, now I have an ID. But what I do need in order to be a functional member of society, I need a social security card. That was the one piece of documentation that, that really had me concerned, because I had to take an interview in person. And I wasn't looking forward to, to this. I had to actually go to the Social Security office. Jack already had his backstory. He was a farmer living in upstate New York. But before he went to apply for a Social Security card, he needed to make sure he looked the part. There were some groups that were exempt farmers and folks who worked on farms. At the age of 35, I'm applying for a Social Security card. So I, I had all answers to every question that I could think of ready. Where do you live now? What did you do? How do you earn a living? How come you don't have a Social Security card? The answers that I prepared were all pretty short. And the other thing that I did is I dumbed myself down in a, in a big way. First of all, I didn't shave for several days. I didn't really comb my hair. I put on a t-shirt that had uh, some oil stain on it. I rubbed soap into my eyes. I wanted the eyes to be dull, because eyes are a dead giveaway. I played the guy who just jumped off a potato truck because he came from upstate New York. I also put a little dirt on my face, not too much. Jack's approach to getting his social security card didn't need to be fancy. It just had to work. So I looked like the dumb farm boy that I pretended to be, and so the interview went very quickly, a couple of minutes. Bingo, I got it, and I was really proud of myself. That was, to me, the toughest part of acquiring documentation. Little did I know that 
the piece of cake that was supposed to come afterwards truly blew up in my face, so to speak. Getting a bona fide U.S. passport. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Anyone that is that well-placed, anyone that is is so invisible as to having, in the, in the case of the Americans, the, a counterintelligence officer from the FBI across the street, you don't have them do much of anything. You don't risk them being caught because they do something stupid and get exposed. So Jack, even though he was as deep as it gets, right, he was invisible, he didn't do a whole lot. And that was on purpose. It wasn't because they didn't trust him. It wasn't because there wasn't stuff for him to do. Once an undercover agent like Jack is embedded in America, what exactly do you have them do all day? Get a job, of course. Back in Moscow, we were talking about, you know, what kind of a job can I get? Obviously, I, I, I'm now documented, but I have no resume. I have no experience in uh, having worked in, in the United States, so I can't just fake it. Chemistry was already five years gone, so whatever I learned, most of that I forgot. And it was fundamentally useless anyway. I couldn't, even if I had remembered everything, I have no proof, so where does it come from? So I was a blank slate as far as uh, work history, other than having worked uh, in a chemical factory for a little while, then having been a farm worker. Here's where the, the KGB uh, was somewhat clueless. They gave me some suggestions. The first one was, well, you can become a dock worker, like a, uh, at the harbor in, in Manhattan down there. Well, I found out rather quickly w without even trying that this is heavily unionized. These are plum jobs, and you need to know somebody. So that one was off. Uh, the next thing is a taxi driver. As I took taxis occasionally, I talked to the drivers, and that's one heck of a hard job. So that didn't seem to be such a great idea. So I'm thinking, what can you do? What can you do? And I studied the want ads every weekend in the Sunday paper. The only thing that appeared to me uh, doable was messenger. One day I, I take the ad that was in the paper for a swift messenger service. The main office was uh, on 46th Street between 5th and 6th Avenue. Though Jack knew he was an elite agent, reducing himself to be a mere bike messenger did not bother him. Part of his mission was to blend in with his fellow New Yorkers while keeping his true identity a secret. Well, the whole idea was to establish yourself as a functioning member of society. That means you had to have a decent job. And I made myself into a bike messenger. In Germany, growing up, we were really expert bike riders. And this is something you don't forget. At least in those days, I was still in really good shape physically. So now as I'm walking out of that office, 
I'm now paying a little more attention to traffic. And I said, oh my God. And I see some bike guys rushing down Fifth Avenue in between cars. The next day I, I went to a store, bought myself a bicycle, got myself a shoulder bag. I showed up in the morning and he says, well, uh, you're going to be working out of an office just off of Madison Avenue. I started making money. I, I got really used to it. I got very good at it. And I got to a point where I figured out how the traffic lights change, which street to use to go across town east and which street to go west. The bike thing came in very handy because I eventually wound up earning on average about $300 a week. The first apartment that I rented, the monthly rent was $270. Immediately I got into a situation where I was independent. I didn't need any more money from the center. They were really proud of me when I told them how much money I was making. We had uh, one client that was uh, Jackie Onassis, and I delivered carpet samples to her place, but they wouldn't let you up. The doorman would take them. We had Ronald Lauder from Estee Lauder as a regular. He had a place off of Park Avenue. The rides were an adventure, weaving in and out of cars and cabs, always dodging a disaster. And I always rode for longer stretches, uh, always in the middle and it's like, it's exhilarating. You race just as fast as the cars. I lost a lot of weight. I was nothing but legs. One night in the cold of winter, Jack hastily pedaled his bike back to his apartment after a long day of deliveries. He raced upstairs and flipped on the television. Just five hours away, in the tiny town of Lake Placid, New York, one of the most memorable moments in Olympic history was already in progress. Here we go as the game is underway. The Soviet Union in red and the United States in white. US team is depending Fans crowded the Olympic Center to watch the Americans take on the Soviet Union in ice hockey, while millions more watched anxiously on televisions at home. Jack knew there was no chance his favorite Soviet players would lose to the underdog American squad. Jack called it a night. His team had lost. Jack had begun to feel comfortable in his new job as a messenger, but his entire operation and his life very nearly came to an abrupt end. There was a two-way street and here comes a car and it, without signaling and looking, makes a left turn and hits me on the side, and I fall and dislocate my right shoulder. It's permanently dislocated. I couldn't work, but I also couldn't do anything with my right hand, so I was out of commission for three or four weeks, where I couldn't signal to the center. So they were uncertain. What's going on with the guy? Well, on top of it, I couldn't even I, I couldn't even do the radio, the shortwave radio. You have to write something, so turned the radio on, but there's no way that I, I, I had the ability to write this down and do the decoding. Jack would slowly recover, but the pain meant that during those three weeks, he could not communicate with the center, leaving them in the dark as to his status. What had happened to him during those three weeks was anyone's guess. Jack was feeling the pressure and he needed to get back to the tasks at hand. His first stint in the U.S. was quickly coming to a close. He needed to secure an American passport before returning to Moscow. 
we made mistakes. I had uh, a birth certificate and I had uh, ID. That's all you need to get a U.S. passport, even today. Government-issued ID, like a driver's license. So that was a piece of cake. You know, this is automatic. You got the two documents and the KGB, and I don't know what possessed them to give me that piece of advice. Uh, they told me, go to the office in person rather than doing it by mail. The mistake fundamentally was mine. And so I show up with, with a filled out form, driver's license and, and a copy of the birth certificate, where it asked for profession, I wrote messenger. I told the truth. But the questions were, when are you planning to travel? Where, where are you planning to go? And I left that blank. So now this alert agent there's a counter, I handed in the application and the two documents, and then he told me to just wait for a little bit. He was alert enough to figure something out that, that it just didn't smell good. So here's a messenger who doesn't make any money. He's asking for a passport, but he doesn't seem to know where and when he wants to travel. He gave me another questionnaire. He says, would you please fill this out because we have some questions about your identity. That's what he said, identity. Well, I still wasn't ready to give up. First question, forget it. I'm a dead duck because the question was, where did you go to high school? I could not put Peter Stuyvesant high school because there was no record of a Jack Barsky ever. They would have checked on this, so there's no way. So now I had to find a way to extricate myself from that situation. Under the circumstances, I did good. There was a bit of a line in front of the counter. I barreled right to the front. He still had the application and the two documents sitting right next to him. I was really playing uh, annoyed and obnoxious. I says, I don't need this garbage. And I grabbed the, my, my documents and ran out of there. And didn't run. I, I walked out really fast. Very close call. Jack's initial two-year stint in America was coming to an end, and he was summoned back to Moscow. And he had no American passport in hand. This was the crown jewel, and it was a, a huge disappointment. I report back to Moscow with a secret writing that it failed, and then we made arrangements for me to go back for debriefing and all that. This was a major failure because the master plan was for me to get this passport. It was towards the end of my first two years, and I, the plan was always for me after two years to go back to Moscow. Take that passport and travel to some place in Europe, I would wind up maybe in Austria or Switzerland and open up a company. And uh, the Russians had experience to funnel money into organizations. So, and this was already sort of uh, hinted at, you know, you, you got you to gotta develop a mindset of a rich person, big cars, a big house and all that. The whole idea was for me to you know, get about $10 million into an account and then travel back to the United States repatriate that money and at that point not 
only am I well enough educated to mingle with interesting people, but I now also have the money. You know, I can go pick my country club. And that means I'm now naturally networking with people who we were interested in. And I was supposed to befriend people who are either decision makers or at least influencers in the realm of foreign policy. That was it. That plan blew up because of that couple of mistakes in the application. Jack was able to take time off from his job as a bike messenger to head back to Moscow. But for now, the passport he had was a fake. I knew that I could go back. So, you know, I had, I had about six weeks uh, the first visit. I wound up first in Moscow with some debriefing. I got a pile of letters that my mother wrote and I had to read them. Reading those letters and then writing back was the most painful thing I ever did. That is when you, when you know that you're lying to your own mother. Every word you write is a lie. Jack had also not spoken to or written Gerlinda in two years. Once the debriefing in Moscow was finished, the two finally reunited in Berlin. I still remember. My apartment was still intact. So I get to Berlin, I unload my luggage in, at my apartment, and then I go try to find her. We didn't have telephones, so I'm just waiting outside in the street for her to come home. She may have known the day somehow. And there she was, in all her beauty, with a green leather jacket, and it was a great reunion. The two years didn't make an impact. We were just as close as when we left. Sergei arranged uh, for us to spend a couple of weeks on the Baltic Sea. He also provided a car for me. And then just before I went back to Moscow and then back to New York, we got married. After spending two years apart from each other, the two were married on September 27, 1980. She had rationalized this whole situation it was either me or no man. My period of activity in the U.S. was supposed to be about 10 years. They gave me a 10-year target. I was under the impression 10 years she was, and we were just saying, we're going to still have a good life. We're going to be in our 30s still. I'll come back and we have a family, and we're going to have a really good life. In early October, just one month after they were married, Jack was sent back to America to continue his mission. Moscow wanted Jack to take on a new path. He was going back to college. One day in his apartment, Jack received one of his usual communications from the center, but today's message was different. I wanted a child as much as she did. It wasn't just her saying I want a child. When I got the radiogram one day that said, Congratulations on the birth of your son, Matthias. As soon as I deciphered that, I went into the hallway of my apartment and did a couple of somersaults. I was that happy. Next time on The Agent. The princess from Chile meets the spy in New York. He told me he was an accountant. 
I fell in love instantly with him. You need to be really well dressed. It was black tie, she told me. And I interacted with a bunch of consuls, vice consuls, and I had my own. I was doing okay. I fit. For me, he was my spy. Nobody knew that I was involved with him. I was doing daddy things, but not enjoying them. I said, what do you mean speech? Well, you're the valedic valedictorian. Now I knew what that meant. We had a lot of fun. I'm telling you, we laughed so much. People used to complain about how much we laughed. It got to a point where the spy job got in, in the way of my real job. The Agent is a production of Imperative Entertainment in association with Windjoy and is created, written, produced, and edited by Jason Hoke. Narration by Alden Ehrenreich. Executive producers are Jason Hoke, Jack Barsky, and Alden Ehrenreich. Sound engineering and additional editing by Shane Freeman. Our original score by Joshua Klebe. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. If you'd like to learn more about this story, make sure to read Deep Undercover, My Secret Life and Entangled Allegiances as a KGB Spy in America by Jack Barsky. Have questions? Email us at podcast at imperativeentertainment.com. If you love this show, tell your friends and leave us a positive review. Thanks again for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.